0: It's good to be here. As I was sitting there worshiping with you this morning, um, I was reminding you what a privilege it is in my role that I get to travel around the world and be with so many Christian fellowships, many Christian churches. Um, and I uh, just want to encourage you, the, uh, the church is alive and well around the world. And we might feel at times that things are difficult and things are not going well, um, but God is good. See one of my former students here. Hello. So, uh, before I came to Our Daily Bread Ministries, I was, um, was in Christian higher education for almost 20 years. And I got to travel here in Indonesia quite a bit uh, and travel throughout the archipelago from Nias all the way to Papua um, and see the work that's being done here. So when I came to this role at our Daily Bread Ministries, I was excited that we have a strong team here in Indonesia of Indonesians reaching Indonesians. We have a team of about 40 Indonesians who work, and that work has been going on for almost 25 years here. Um, And that work has actually started in 1998, a very difficult year. But God has been faithful even in a difficult time. Our mission is to make the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. And so while many of you know us through our devotional, we provide many more resources and other things that we do to help communicate God's word so people can experience the life-changing wisdom of the Bible and have the Holy Spirit bring about change. Our desire is to fuel a Bible engagement movement around the world where people read, reflect and respond to God's word in a regular and sustained manner so that they can be on mission for Jesus. Amen? You know, it's, uh, you know it's, there's been research that's been done on what is the one behavior Christians can do to bring about life transformation. And uh, there's a lot of things that we do with spiritual practices. We can talk about prayer, gathering here on Sunday mornings, going to conferences. Um, small groups. All those things are important, but if you were to look at actually what brings about measurable change, there's only one thing. That is sustained and regular Bible reading. Now, we know it's not the actual reading of the Bible that brings about change, right? It is the Holy Spirit taking those words so that they are alive and active and they bring about change. So it's great to be part of a ministry that makes that its sole desire, is how can we help people come to a, to develop that rich practice. Now, today I'm going to uh, talk about um, a phrase, the last two words in the book of Acts. So if you turn with me into Acts 28, 16 through 31, it says, um, it's actually said 17, but it's actually verse, i want to go back one verse. This is the last section of the book of Acts. And um, it's a powerful ending to a really long story about how the church has grown. And we are the inheritors of that story. We are here because of what happened 2,000 years ago in this story. So if you turn to Acts 28, verse 16, I'll read that. I'm reading from the ESV version. Luke says, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into into the hands of the Romans. We have received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodgings in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them About Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they, can ha- they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles they will listen he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance let us pray Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you use this to speak to us today. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see. May we not be like the Jews in this passage who disbelieved. May we be responsive. We know we have accepted Christ as your savior. May we be on mission for you. Give us eyes that are bigger of what you're doing in this world and a heart and a passion and a willing to surrender ourselves to that work. So, Father, I pray that you give me wisdom here and anything that I say here would be in glory and honor to you. So, Father, we ask these things to a good and gracious Father. In your name we pray. Amen. The title of the sermon comes from the last two words in the book of Acts in Greek. Parasias akolitos. Boldly unhindered, unhinderedly bold. It's how the book ends. It's a strange way to end a long story of trials and hardships, a long history of the beginning of the church. At a time when we may feel hard-pressed, surrounded by bad news, and there seems to be little hope, we need to be reminded that God is telling a different story. This passage, I believe, speaks to us today. Just like back then, when things were difficult, things can be difficult here now. Right, we can think about what we've just all experienced collectively in this world, a worldwide pandemic and the impact. And what's often in the back of our minds is Will it come back? What's the next wave? What does that mean? It's a major concern. It's impacted the church. In America, a third of the church has not come back after the pandemic has received And we're not talking about on Zoom. They just have not come back. Major changes Because of worldwide events. Or, we think about the Ukrainian war and the consequences and devastation. We see that in our news feeds and it's it's ugly, it's horrific. And we wonder, like, what does this mean? We know that there will be food shortages throughout Central Asia and Africa because of the fighting there and the inability to get grain out, and the disruption to logistics and supply chains. And we're watching inflation around the world rise because of the increasing costs of gas and petroleum. Like, what does this mean for us? It is concerning. It is frustrating. We feel like, is there any hope? What does that look like for the future? Or we can think about the United States, where I'm from. There is a growing divide. Like the people, whenever I travel around the world, everyone asks me, the first question is, what is going on in America? You guys are crazy. The arguing dissension and the conflict, we're exporting this around the world. And people are wondering, what's going to happen to America? And what does that mean if something happens to America? What does that mean for the rest of the world? Or maybe getting a little bit closer to home, South China Sea. We see the conflict there about who owns what and what does that mean? And as we see China assert itself on the world stage, everyone's concerned of like what will happen to peace and stability in Southeast Asia? What will happen to the nation's realigning? Will there be conflict? What will this mean for me? Or maybe to get really close to home and here in Indonesia, there's elections here in two years. I, last time I was here was in 2016 and Jokowi had just become president. And there was great excitement, but unsure, uh, uncertainty about can he really do the job? And since I've come back, what I've heard is this, there's excitement of like, it's been encouraging that things are going well. There's stability in Indonesia. But in the back of everyone's mind is two years from now, in 1998. What happens if there isn't peace? What happens if there isn't stability? You know, in 60 AD, when Paul walked into Rome, you could think about the church having similar concerns, similar worries. Now, this was, of course, before Twitter and everyone shared the news, but here are some possible headlines that you could see as Paul goes into Rome, under guard, chained, a prisoner, the great Gentile missionary imprisoned in Rome. All hope is lost. Paul's life is in the hands of a mad emperor. What will Nero do? Or this headline, The Empire Strikes Back, Quelling the Church, Rome Wins or the church in chains, Christians on the run. We forget about the the tensions and what it must have felt like at that moment for Christians, particularly in Rome. Rome was the world's largest city. It was the center of the empire. Most scholars would, would say that Rome at this time in 60 AD was over 4 million people the largest city on earth, the world empire. All roads lead to Rome. If you want to make a name for yourself, you go to Rome. It is unparalleled. It is unconquerable. This is the city that Paul walks into in chains. And he walks into a city to talk with Christians, and most scholars believe there are between 12 and 16 house churches at this time in Rome. So just a few hundred Christians in a city of more than 4 million, the odds seem to be completely in Rome's favor, right? How in the world? Can the Bible, the book of Acts, end with boldness unhindered in that context? I'd like to back up and look at the entire book of Acts. Don't worry, we're not going to read the entire book. We'll get out of here on time. Um, But I think I want to explain how did we get to this statement, because this is an interesting statement. It's curious. I have meditated on why Luke chose this for many, many years. Like, why this statement? So let's just look back and just kind of look at the entire book of Acts. One, it's really interesting, the book of Acts begins in a room, the upper room. Jesus ascends into heaven and sends his disciples back and they go to an upper room. There's about 120 people who gather together. The book begins in a room and the book ends in a room. A small room. In the center of an empire. It's not by chance that we see these two serve as bookends. If we look back a little even more, we can see that the the book starts in Jerusalem, a backwater provincial city. And while the whole Bible is about going to Jerusalem, at that time in the world, no one cared. Jerusalem, at the most, was an irritant. If they would just get in line and quit fighting with the Romans, things would be okay. So this book, the book of the Acts, begins in this small little nobody thought about city and ends in Rome, the world empire, the place to be. If you want to make a name for yourself, you would go to Rome. The architecture, 2,000 years, still stands today. We talk about this period as a glorious period in human history, from at least from a human flourishing and the sense of a great accomplishment. I wonder what it's been like for Paul to walk into that city, to see the large buildings, the great city, and to know that he's now at the hands of somebody that he doesn't know. It's also interesting if you look at the book of Acts, the first half of the book is actually broken. The first half goes from chapter 1 to chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the center of the book of Acts where we have the great council in Jerusalem to decide what the church will do about all the Gentile believers. When you look at the first half of the book of Acts, the first book of Acts is one of hindrances slowly being removed out of the way so that there is a growing momentum for the church. Let's just look here at the major incidents in the book of Acts, Acts chapter three and four. John and Peter go into the temple, they heal a crippled man and they confront the Sanhedrin, they go to jail and they confront the Sanhedrin. The same group of people who crucified Christ 50 days earlier are now on their back foot and recognizing what do we do with these men? Things change. What seemed like hindrances? This same group who are hiding in the upper room are now boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 5, problems within the church, Ananias and Sapphira. And what does God do? Takes care of them. No more problems. Acts chapter 6. The church is growing so fast. What are we gonna do to serve all these people? raise up deacons. They do that. And one of them is Stephen. And he becomes a powerful witness for Jesus Christ, so powerful that the Jews stone him. It seems like another hindrance, but the very thing that causes Stephen to be stoned actually ignites the church. It becomes a wildfire throughout Judea. And Christians run. Acts chapter 8, Saul decides to persecute the church. It's kind of interesting when you look at this. Saul is actually persecuting the church and causing the church to grow. And in a few more chapters, he's going to go on the other side and he's going to be the one evangelizing so the church can grow. So even this, what seems to be a hindrance, God is using for his good. Acts chapter 10. Peter is in Joppa. A great sheet comes down from heaven and God says, take up and eat three times, telling Peter that the good news is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. And Cornelius sends servants, and they come, and they go to his home, and the entire family gets saved. And the Holy Spirit shows up there as well. And they say, This too, the Gentiles are also part of the family. More hindrances just taken care of, just leaping over them. Like you just feel the church is just moving like wildfire. Acts chapter 12. You see James, he's, he's killed. Things seem to be going against. And Peter's captured. But what happens? God takes even that and frees him, What seems to be impossible. Like he is on, he's hours from death. And he walks out of prison. And encourages the church, like, don't be fearful. Be bold. Acts chapter 13 and 14, we get the first great missionary journey. And this has only been a couple years now after Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. Now we have we have Peter, we have Paul and Barnabas going on a great missionary journey and going out to all the Gentiles and sharing, and people are being welcomed. And even though there's difficulty in places like um, where there's crowds and like Lystra where he's stoned, people are still responding. Which gets us to Acts chapter 15. Because there is so much overwhelming response from the Gentiles, the Jews have to say, the the Christians in Jerusalem have to say, what do we do? How do we respond to this? And the very thing that could completely destroy the church and divide it into Jewish church and a Gentile church, they come together and say, no, we will be one body under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Hindrance after hindrance after hindrance and they just seem to be going past them and leaping over them and going right through them. The church seems to be unstoppable through the first 15 chapters. But when we look at the second half of Acts, we start to get a reversal. The second half is a story of slowing down. Things start to get hard. The gospel doesn't seem to be as penetrating as quickly it seems to be really more, it's much more difficult. And you just constantly see something where things just seem to be running like wildfire. It just seems like it's very difficult for the church to move, particularly Paul. And even though while he's still moving, it's just, the, you can feel the narrative. It just slows down. When you get to the last two chapters, if you read them, it is a slog It is just a really, it's like running in molasses. And I'm just going to give you the highlights of what Paul has to do that after he's been imprisoned unjustly in Jerusalem and being accused and being passed around over and over again, he finally appeals to Caesar and says, okay, you can go to Rome. So he's going to go to Rome, what should be just a couple of weeks at most of a journey. Takes nearly a year. He sails to Rome under guard. Luke tells us that the winds are against them in Cyprus. And so they change directions and go to Myra. And they sail slowly. If you read the passage, you see over and over again, against and slow, and the winds are against us over and over again. They arrived in Needus. They're not able to go further, so they change directions. And they go by Crete with great difficulty. Paul warns them, we should stay here and winter here because it'll be dangerous. I've seen God has spoken to me and they say, we'll do it anyways. And they go out to, the sea, they go out to sea and they're hit by a storm that lasts two weeks. They come to Cauda, an island, and try to weather out the storm there and they're not able to. And so they go out and they get pushed out to sea and they lose all their sails. They have to throw things over their board and they despair. They haven't eaten and they're like, will we die? And after two weeks, they start to see that they're going to be run aground on the island. So the, the, you know, the guards say, we should kill all the prisoners. And at the last second, they're stopped from doing that, but they wreck on the island of Malta. And even here, as they're shipwrecked on the island of Malta, cold and wet, and they're trying to build a fire, they feel like they have some safety, what happens to Paul? He's bitten from a viper. They spend three months on the island. Then they get a new ship. And then that ship takes them to Syracuse. And then slowly from Syracuse, they go to Regium. And from Regium, they go to Petolia. And from there, in verse 16, they finally arrive in Rome. That description in Acts chapters 27 and 28 about that ship journey is the best and most descriptive ship, descript, description of a ship journey in, in, in the ancient world. There's a reason that Luke slows down and tells this story. He could have just said, Hey, we sailed from Jerusalem and skipped over all those details. But he's showing that Paul, on his way to Rome, it is getting hard, it is difficult, and there's hindrance after hindrance after hindrance, and he's in chains, and things look hopeless. See, the book of Acts ends after an expansive story throughout the entire ancient world. Most people at that time never left their hometown. And Paul has been everywhere. Paul has been preaching, and people have been coming to him. Most likely, when he's here in Rome, at this time, he is sitting in a small room looking out over the parade grounds where the victorious Roman generals come in and celebrate their victory. So the book of Acts, after all this great story, ends with Paul in Rome, bound to a Roman guard, being reminded regularly about who is in charge of this world. At least what the Romans would like to say about who's in charge of this world. General after general, great parade after great parade coming through. It's a It's an exhausting experience. And it's in this context that we read the last verse of Acts, it's with all of this behind it that Luke says these things. Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, period. And then he sets his pen down, and he's done. I've been thinking about why he ended this way, as I said earlier, for quite some time. And I'd like to offer some reflections about what I think Luke is trying to communicate to us about this phrase at the end, particularly about boldness unhindered. It's interesting that that phrase is an ironic theme for the book of Acts, While the entire book is one of growing boldness, and we see this, Paul becomes bolder and bolder, the entire book is full of hindrances, things to thwart the expansion of the gospel, economically, socially, politically, all things spiritually, working against the gospel. It is paradoxical in that hindrances create the environment in which boldness unhindered can occur. It's almost as if you need the hindrances so that boldness can flourish. I know I often would like to pray to God say, God, will you please remove the hindrances? Why can't things be easier? And we miss the opportunity to see that maybe God's saying in despite this hindrance, I'm doing something. In fact, this hindrance is going to be the opportunity for you to be bold. See, hindrances, when seen through the eyes of God, are opportunities to practice, to embody boldness. Second reflection is this, this phrase, boldness unhindered, is an ironic description of Paul. While he boldly proclaims unhindered, he is literally bound by a chain to a guard. I wonder what that must have been like. Let me think about it. I don't know if he had to be bound when he used the toilet. But in everything, sleeping, eating, talking... Constantly reminded, you're a prisoner. The book literally ends in a prison. What a strange way to tell a story about the church. Like prisons are a place where things are defeated, where, where, where the ruler exerts his final control and says, I'm in charge. See, it's only the Christian story that would see prison as a launching pad for a worldwide Christian movement. What a strange place for the church to grow. In fact, you know, we're here today. We're here today as the legacy of that time. Paul proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. This is what he was in prison for. The gospel has reached Jakarta, Indonesia because of this moment right here. The third is this. The third reflection is this, and that is we see in this verse of boldness unhindered, a glimpse of resurrection. But we have to look carefully. See, Paul is dying metaphorically here. He's been constricted. He's been denied of things, his will, his desire to go free, so that others can live. It is from this prison that he writes four books that we read today. He writes Colossians, the great epistle about the supremacy of Christ over the empire. Over those who think they control this world, Paul says in the prison, while well, he's being reminded and he's being on guard that no, Jesus is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. It's from this prison cell that he'll write Philemon. The great story about forgiveness and reconciliation of two people, a master and a slave that seems to be impossible, that the world says no way that they should ever come together. And that the master should exert his authority over that and punish the slave. And Paul intercedes on his behalf and says, put me in debt. It's from this prison that he will tell, he'll write the letter of Ephesians. The great epistle about the multi-ethnic church and what it means to be gathered together as a people serving Jesus Christ. The very reason why he's in prison is because he would go to those that the Jews said do not deserve the good news. And he writes Philippians, the story of partnering and proclaiming the gospel, that whomever he works with, they can come together and proclaim Jesus Christ. In fact, if you turn to Philippians, I'd like to read two passages because it's in Philippians that we see something very interesting. Paul writes this book. In fact, some believe that this is the first book that he wrote from prison. And Paul writes this, and I think in this, as he writes this, he's winking to all the Christians and telling them, look, Rome thinks it's won. But Jesus is victorious. Philippians 1, 12 through 14 I know how to be brought, whoops, that's the wrong chapter. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's sitting there in prison. The imperial guard, this is the most powerful guard in Rome. In fact, most of the, of the uh, emperors in Rome feared the imperial guard. They ten 10,000 unit strong guard. They protected the city, and they're the ones that Paul is talking to daily, sharing the gospel, so much so that they know why he's there. The Trojan horse is in the city. Paul's saying, yes, I might be in prison, but Jesus is on the move. Who would have thought that the guardians of the city would be shaped by Paul on a daily basis? Can you imagine this, you know, the books of the Bible, those epistles, most scholars would say that they were not written by Paul, but they were dictated by Paul. The first audience of those books were Roman guards. Isn't that ironic? Like, only God could tell a story like that. But it gets better than that if you go to Philippians chapter 4, the second to last verse in Philippians. I'll read from verse 21 and 22. Paul says this Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Like even the emperor of Rome, I have infected the gospel even to that place. Boldness unhindered. Like who would have thought that from a prison cell that you could reach into the very heart of the empire and turn it For the gospel. I'd like to conclude with um, three thoughts and a short story. The first is this, I think applies to us today and applies to me. In fact, I needed it this week. I had to preach this sermon to myself as I faced some hindrance in our organization and frustrations as I was praying. And that is this, is that hindrances are a given. I would like my life smooth and easy, greased. But that's not how this world works. Not on this side of eternity. Hindrances are a given. So the question is this. Concluding thought number two. The question is, how do I see hindrances? Do I see them with the eyes of my flesh or with spiritual eyes. I'll tell you, Wednesday morning, about two o'clock in the morning, I was seeing the hindrances I was dealing with with my flesh. I'm sure all of you can relate as you face challenges or difficulties and things to see that, why, why me, why this? What God is asking us to do is not to look at him with, with, with the eyes of the flesh, but the eyes of faith, with spiritual eyes, and to look for resurrection. Because resurrection's happening. You might be dying. You might be imprisoned. You might be confined, but others are being raised. And if we'll just have the eyes to see it and be open to it, too often I miss resurrection because I'm so focused on myself. So, how do I see hindrances? The third is this it's not just how I see the hindrances, the ones that come no matter what, that so we can't escape them. It's so how do I respond to those hindrances? Do I shrink back and take a step back? Or do I boldly step into them, knowing that the God of the universe? despite all my circumstances, is in control. It doesn't matter about the powers and authorities of this world, the empires that think that they win. We know that God wins. He's already won. We're just cleaning up. If I think about this, I've recognized this in my own life, and that is that God is more interested in what he 's doing in me than what I am doing for Him. And what he 's often saying, Mads, when you face these hindrances, well, how will you respond? Let me do the work in you. I will take care of them. Let me do the work in you, because when I do that work in you, that becomes the fertile ground for boldness to take place for you and others to be empowered, whether it's the story that others see in you or you taking steps to step into difficult situations and boldly proclaim things that you don't feel the confidence to do when you see see things through the eyes of your flesh. Now, I'd like to, to close with a story. You know, our daily bread, we're known primarily for our devotional, but we do much more than that. We're committed to helping people to read, reflect, and respond to God's word in a regular and sustained manner, wherever they are, and to helping fuel a Bible engagement movement that helps people be bold with their faith, which is why a couple months ago when we heard about a Hmong village in northern, Indone- in northern Vietnam, up near the Chinese border, that we needed to go to help. Now we know that Vietnam is a communist country. In um, this Hmong village, up in the north, up in the mountains of, of Vietnam, um, they had completely converted to Christ. Gospels brought to them and everyone in the village except to Christ. Very common in very, very communal environments. Now, they had a major choice that they had to face because this was going to be a big test for them, not just because of their commitment to Jesus Christ, but they knew they were going to have to make some significant changes because the economic engine for that village was the growing and production of opium. This is how they made their living. This is how the village thrived. And if you're growing and producing opium, you're also doing what? You're also using opium. This is a major hindrance. Like, the gospel, what do I do with this? Jesus Christ has called me to do something new, and how do I respond to this situation, this economic hardship? Like, what does this look like? Do we let it go? What does the future look like for us, for our children? How do we eat? How do we take, can we just grow opium a little bit? We won't use it. They knew that wasn't the answer. And so, they burned all their crops, plowed them under, destroyed vast amounts of opium, and they decided to grow orchids instead. And so they grow orchids now, and that's their economic engine. Now, what's interesting about this is that all while this is happening, the Vietnamese government, unaware that this is happening in a small village, they recognize that this village is in a very beautiful place, and they want to turn it into a tourist resort area. They want to bring people from all over the world to this village start to see the irony, right? A communist government wanting to bring people to a Christian village. And so they start building a road. Now we learned about this and we said, and they don't have a Hmong village, they don't have a lot of Christian material. And so we have material written in their language that we could bring to them. And so we decided to go. And so uh, Ibu Nedu, who is um, our country director, said, I need to go. And so she got on a plane. She's here from Indonesia. And she went, to Thailand, she went to Vietnam, then flew again to the north of Vietnam. And they got on a train for 10 hours up into the mountains. And when she got off the train, she was supposed to get, on a car, get in a car and go up the mountain to get to the village. It's a two-hour drive. It's a dirt road. But the rains had come early that year and had started to wash it out. And so the car said, we will not go. It is too dangerous. The mudslides, the challenges of getting there, we won't go. But Nettie's sitting there with all this material, and she knows people are waiting for her. So how do I get there? So not being deterred by the hindrance, she got a motorbike and packed all the material on the back of the motorbike, put on her poncho, and rode for over two hours in mud that came up to her wheel wells to get to the village. And When she got to the village, you can hear the church because everyone's a Christian there. They have, they have more than one church because the village church can't hold everybody in one building. And they realized that they have a responsibility now because people are going to be coming to them from all over the world. And like, what do we do with the gospel? How do we steward this opportunity? Because in two years, that muddy road will be a highway. It'll be paved by the Vietnamese government. They're going to pave the way for people to come and meet this village. And so they decide what we need to do is we need to create a welcome center. And in this welcome center, what we're going to provide is we're going to provide an opportunity for people to engage and interact with the gospel. Everyone who comes to our village will hear about Jesus Christ. How ironic story gets better than this, though, because people have already heard about this. And so in the dry season, people, tourists are already going to this village and there's already people from all over the world who have accepted Jesus Christ and have been baptized in that village, a village that used to sell opium, now converting people. To Jesus Christ. In fact, there is an American who went to that village and accepted Christ, and he said this after getting baptized there is a church on my street corner, but I had to go to northern Vietnam to meet Jesus Christ. Boldness unhindered. That story makes no sense. It's the story of the gospel being proclaimed in a prison cell and infecting the imperial guard and even the household of Caesar. It's the story of a Hmong village sharing Jesus Christ to the world and God's bringing them to, to them. It's the story here of Indonesia and this church. And here, Jakarta International Christian Fellowship, we, this church brings people from all over the world that come here for a period of time and go get sent out to share the gospel. So I just want to say thank you for being a faithful witness here in Jakarta. For those of you who have been praying and reading the material and supporting us, I want to thank you. That story, the Hmong Village, is your story because it was resources that came from Indonesia, not from the United States. Money from Indonesia that reached that village. So Thank you. God is good. Boldness unhindered. Let us pray. Father, thank you for being a good and gracious Father, for emboldening your church despite the obstacles and hindrances, the things that seem to work against your church, to make things difficult. That Father, you turn even those into opportunities for people to reach and meet you. God, may we be on mission for you. May we be bring your word to people who desperately need it. Thank you for giving us this mission, entrusting it to us, and may we be faithful stewards with it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. I'm gonna close with this. Um, I have to run. Um, I have to catch a flight to Malaysia. Um, got like a few minutes to get in the car to go. But I do wanna say thank you for having me here and and uh, I appreciate, again, all that you do. Um, I look forward, I'll be coming back in June and hopefully I'll have a chance to, to visit and worship with you again. So thank you, Pa Yusup. Um, and uh, so I wish I could stay and talk with you. Um, sorry I can't, but we do have materials out back. If you are interested, we'd love for you um, to use those, and if they're helpful for you, um, we'd appreciate it. So, thank you.